Well, with your Bible open at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, we have today a very strange-sounding sermon title. The title of the message is The Compartmentalizing of Jesus Christ. The Compartmentalizing of Jesus Christ. What a strange-sounding title for a sermon. What does it mean to compartmentalize? It means to put into compartments or put into boxes or put into divisions. That's the whole idea to compartmentalize, to put things in pigeonholes or little places, if you will, to compartmentalize Jesus Christ means to put Christ into some sort of box, some sort of compartment or a cubby hole, perhaps, you know, it's like saying to Jesus, Jesus, stay here. Stay here in this place until I come to visit you. And it's almost like putting Jesus in prison, isn't it? Putting him in some sort of corner, perhaps. Now, that shouldn't really startle us because religious people have been doing this sort of thing for, for 2,000 years. They've been doing it to Jesus for a long time, compartmentalizing Jesus Christ. But we want to examine this and ask this question, is it even possible for Christians today born-again Christians today, to actually try to compartmentalize Jesus Christ. If it is possible, how is it possible? How is it done? How does it happen? And I believe the answer is it happens when we relegate Jesus to one hour on Sunday mornings. When we do that, we are, in effect, compartmentalizing Jesus Christ. We're putting him in a little cubby, a little box, a place where we say, now you stay there and I'll come and visit you once a week. It's compartmentalizing the savior. So in other words, he ceases to be the object of our love and affection and thoughts throughout the day. And usually when a, when a person becomes a born again, Christian at salvation, Jesus becomes the love of their life. When someone becomes saved, it's brand new life. Normally this is the case. And they think about Jesus and his loving forgiveness of their sins throughout the day. They wake up in the morning. They can hardly wait to read the Bible and get on their knees and talk to the savior. And then at bedtime, they talk over their day with Jesus and they finish by saying, good night, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And that's often the case for a person when they become a Christian at salvation. However, the world, the flesh, and the devil all seem to have a combined effect to dull down the Christian. This morning, I think we'd be wise to examine this dulling down effect and take some steps to protect ourselves. Let's look to the Lord in prayer first and ask him to open the eyes of our understanding. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence and give you the thanks and praise and glory. We thank you again, Lord, for all of the folks connected with the church and so many are watching right now over the internet. Dear wonderful Heavenly Father, have the Holy Spirit open our eyes to this truth and help us to see the, the cunning cleverness of our enemy, Satan, and show us how we can take steps to prevent this compartmentalizing of our savior to prevent it from ever happening. 
please undertake for us now. In Jesus' name, we humbly ask. Amen. Now, you needn't turn to it, but there's a verse back in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I think it's 10 verse 10. It says, if the iron be blunt, it's talking about an axe. If the iron be blunt and you do not wet the edge, to wet the edge means to sharpen the edge. So you got a blunt, dull axe. Then must he put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Now the story is told of two men who decided they would, would have a woodcutting competition with each other. And they would see who could chop the most wood in a day. And so bright and early the next day, they got their axes and they, they got their sack lunch and off they went to the forest. And one man started here and about 50 paces, the other man started over there. They could see each other. And they went to town, chopping and chopping. After one hour, the first man looked over and saw his friend sitting down, taking a break. Ha! He said, I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to work through my break. I'll chop more wood than he will. And so away he went. He just kept on chopping. Well, about another hour went by and he, he noticed his friend taking another break. And he thought, why is that guy squirrely or something? You know, he says, ah, he's going to lose. And he keeps chopping and chopping. And so again, uh, this happens a third hour and so on, but he just keeps hard at work. So every hour, the man's friend would take a break. But the strange thing is that when he looked at his friend's wood pile, it seemed to be every bit as large as his own, possibly bigger. And this was very frustrating for the man, obviously. But he had great determination and he just kept chopping all day long without a break. Well, at the end of the day, you can imagine he was ready to die. He was so tired. His every, you know, joint ached and oh, he just felt like death would be welcome at that point. He felt so, so pained and he was sweaty and he was hot and the bugs were flying around him and his axe was nearly worn out completely. And he dragged himself over to his, to his friend to see how his friend was doing. And he was shocked. His friend's wood pile was quite a bit bigger than his own. And he thought that his friend cheated. And he said, you cheated. You cheated. He said, you had to cheat. He said, every time I look at you, you're sitting down, taking a break. And your wood pile is bigger than mine. You must have cheated. And his friend looked at him and, and said to him, I didn't cheat. He said, I, I took a break every hour and I was sharpening my axe, just like it says in the Bible. Now, the moral of the story is this. If you're going to be using sharp things in, in the tool shop or even in the kitchen, you know that using sharp knives, eventually they get dull. You know that. And they have to be resharpened because uh, dull knives don't do such a good job, do they? A man who was a friend of mine, he was a chef. He's a Christian man. He's dead. He's gone to heaven years and years, decades ago. But he once told me, you'll cut yourself faster in the kitchen on a dull knife than on a sharp one. Now, not being a chef, <laughs> I just stay out of the kitchen myself. I think it's much safer that way for everyone involved. Mm. I was watching uh, Super Church this morning in JR's kitchen. Did you see that? That... No, you got to go home and watch it. It's hilarious how he was going to make a snack for his friend. Whew. 
Wow, I think he got royally kicked out of the kitchen. Well, before that happens, I won't even go in the kitchen. I'll spare people's lives. Well, anyhow, the moral of the story is that if you don't sharpen your axe or your knife, it becomes dull and it becomes ineffective. It doesn't do the job, does it? Now, they say that fishermen, as fishermen are casting their nets out into the the water to catch fish, the nets become clogged with seaweed and slime and grime and whatever that floats through the water. And at the end of the day, the fishermen have to wash their nets. And we see that in the New Testament. That's in the Gospels. The fishermen were washing their nets because clean nets catch more fish. Dirty clogged nets are ineffective at catching fish. Dull axes are ineffective at cutting down trees. Now, likewise, the Christian, as the Christian lives his or her life, the combined effects of the world and the flesh and the devil all have a dulling down effect on our lives, making us ineffective. And we need to spend time with Jesus sharpening and cleaning in order for us to be effective. Otherwise we're going to be ineffective Christians and our lives are going to be dull and sorrowful and there'll be no rewards at the, the seat of the, the, the beam of the, the judgment of, of Jesus. When he looks to reward us, when we get to heaven, there'll be no rewards at all. Now we have here a passage of scripture And it's a principle here in Mark chapter seven that I want to point out to you. And it's an important one. The Lord Jesus here is talking to those uh, religious uh, hypocrites there of his day. And uh, he said to them here, let's see in chapter number seven uh, and starting in verse nine, full well, ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition for Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. Well, we know that's one of the the 10 commandments and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corbin. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is saying this, that it's right and proper for uh, a man to honor his parents. And that means to, to look after them and to help them. And that, if that involves money, it involves money. If that involves time, it involves time. If that involves anything that the man has in order to bless his parents, then it involves that. But you see the Jews back then didn't want to do that. They didn't want to give money to their parents to help out their poor old mother or their poor old father. They didn't want to do that. They were selfish. They were greedy. And so what they did was they said, Oh, it's Corbin, meaning it's a gift. It's dedicated to the Lord. I can't give you mom, dad. Sorry. You're going to have to starve to death because this is holy money. This is sacred money. You see what they were doing? They were getting around the commandment of God using their tradition. And the bottom line here, verse 13 says, making the word of God of none effect. Now that's exactly what Satan is trying to do with us. Because I'll tell you right now, an effective Christian is a threat to Satan. He is scared of effective Christians. He's not afraid of ineffective Christians. Uh, those ones he, he could care less about. They can't do anything. Their prayers are no good. They don't have any light left to shine. They've taken their candle and hid it under a bushel or something. They've got no power of the Holy Spirit. 
They can't overcome anything. They're weaklings. They're no threat at all to Satan. But a man or woman who's saved, who's staying clean and staying sharp with the Lord Jesus day by day, they are a threat to Satan. They really, really are. And Satan knows it. And so what he tries to do is to dull down the effect of Christian. He tries to put a dullness on your edge. He tries to make sure that your nets get clogged and dirty and stay that way because you become ineffective. Sin gets in there and like grease and grime, it gums up the works. And now you are very ineffective for the Lord Jesus. Doesn't mean you're lost. You'll still get to heaven, but you're no, of no earthly good. You can't possibly assault the devil's kingdom. You can't possibly get on your knees and pull down strongholds. You can't possibly even wear the armor. You're so weak. And the devil, he knows he can't do that to you all at once. See, this is where his cleverness comes in. He knows that he can't just instantly overnight make you ineffective. He knows that. And so what he does is he's very clever is he slowly by slowly dulls your edge slowly by slowly. He erodes your Bible reading and prayer slowly by slowly. He erodes your faithful church attendance slowly by slowly. He erodes your tithing and, and giving to missions slowly, slowly. He gets you to hide under that bushel. An effective Christian is a threat to Satan. So Satan goes to work slowly. Now the story is told of a scientist who was studying the behavior of small animals, particularly frogs, as it relates to their sense of self preservation. You know, when danger is present, what does the frog do? And so the scientist got a pan of hot water and put a frog in. Well, instantly the frog sensed the hot water and the danger and jumped right out of the pan. And he repeated this experiment a few times. Every time the frog's sense of self-preservation, the sense of danger, frog would jump right out of the pan. So what the scientist did then was he took a pan and put cool water in it and put the frog in the cool water and the frog loved it. Oh, I'm at home. And he settled right down, made himself comfortable. The scientist put the pan over top of a hot stove element. And at first the frog felt nothing. And so no danger, just stay there. But little by little, slow by slow, the temperature started rising in the water, in the pan. But the frog just kind of got used to it. A little warmer, that's okay. Got used to it. Each time the temperature kept rising there, the frog just kept getting used to it. By this point, the water was getting quite hot. And eventually the frog boiled in the water and died. Now, this is something like how Satan cleverly brings in the dulling effect and slows us down and dulls us until we become ineffective. And the biggest joke is that sometimes we're the last ones to see it. Others can see it in us. Others look at us and say, you know, that man, that woman, 
They used to be faithful. They used to let their light shine and pray for the lost and give out gospel tracts and be a soul winner. They used to do this. They used to do that. Now, it's not like that anymore. So the biggest joke becomes on us when we as Christians give in to Satan's clever little tricks and we get dulled down, we become ineffective. And so today, don't you think it's a smart thing for us to take a closer look at Satan's step-by-step process at making us useless? Hmm? So if you're taking notes, note number one, point number one, Satan starts to cool our spirit. There's a step-by-step process Satan uses. Number one, he cools our spirit. Now, when we're first saved, we're full of joy. We're full of the Holy Ghost and we're full of joy. And we love to go to church and we, we love to sing the hymns and we love to hear the preaching. We love to come forward on the invitations. But all this, for, all this zeal is dangerous to Satan. This zeal for Jesus is not something that Satan can stomach. He's very scared of it. And so he needs to introduce a number of diversions. Zeal for Christ must be replaced by zeal for other things. And this is how he cools our spirit. So Satan gets us to focus on our daily stresses, stresses of our schooling, stresses of our jobs, stress in our families, stress in our problems, maybe stress in our health. How about stress in our struggles with sin as well? There's all kinds of stress that Satan will bring in at us. And then to, to help soothe things. What the devil will do is, is get us to indulge in plenty of time, plenty of time in relaxing and hobbies and movies and sports, and maybe even surfing the internet, which can be very dangerous by the way. Now the effect of all this daily stress and all this daily entertainment actually throws cold water on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit's been working very hard to get us saved and get us close to Jesus and keep us there. But the old devil is bringing in zeal for other things. So he begins by getting us thinking about all of our problems and our, our, our struggles And then he brings in the entertainment as well. And so what happens is our zeal for Jesus is cut in half. And it isn't that much longer before it's cut in half again. Over the years, I have seen personally, I have seen numerous Christians start with zeal and attend church three times a week only to suffer the effects of daily stress and daily entertainment. And then I've seen their attendance drop off sharply. What happens to us is we become something like Martha in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus came into the house for dinner and there was Martha and Mary and Mary sat at Jesus feet, but Martha was in the kitchen and she was very cumbered about all this serving. There's stuff had to be done and, and things had to be looked after and things on the stove and getting the table set and all those are good things. But She was so cumbered with these that she, she seemed to lose sight of the fact that she had God in her home for a visit. And so we become all troubled like Martha was troubled. All right. That's step number one is to cool our spirit. 
Step number two, Satan begins to callous our hearts. C-A-L-L-O-U-S. To callous our hearts. So what is a callous? A callous means dried, hard skin. That's what it means. And it's usually a spot on your hands or your feet or on your body or something. Somewhere on your body where the skin starts to become hard. And the way that normally happens is you need an abrasive to come in day after day and do some rubbing away on that same area. Some people who pick up a shovel and start shoveling for a while, they get these blisters on their hands. Ouch. Some people who take up a hammer and start hammering for any length of time, they're getting blisters on their hands. But what happens is when you keep hammering the next day and the day after, those blisters turn into calluses because those are the spots that the hammer is rubbing rough against the skin. So this is what causes calluses. So uh, after Satan has cooled our spirit enough and we're not as zealous for Jesus anymore, like we used to be, then Satan can really start on his dirty work in our lives, rubbing abrasives on our hearts. So he begins to, callous our hearts. Now Satan introduces usually two deadly assaults to do this. And they act like a double whammy. Assault number one is he makes sure we get offended. So this is all under point number two on callousing our hearts is Satan makes sure that we get offended. And usually most often it's not one offense. It's numerous Many offenses. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, Jesus said, offenses will come. He told us right there, offenses will come. But then he says, woe to the one who brings them. But offenses will come to God's people. So people end up mistreating us. They don't treat us right. They don't say nice things. Even our own families can mistreat us. And by the way, that happens a lot. In families, they get mistreated. Children mistreat their parents. Parents mistreat their children. Children mistreat each other. Mom and dad mistreat each other. You get the idea? This happens a lot in families. We get disappointed with results. We didn't get the results we wanted in school. We didn't get the results we wanted at work. Someone else got the raise. Someone else got the promotion. We try out for a job. Someone else got it. We get disappointed. All these things are abrasives that the devil uses to rub on our hearts. What's he doing? He's trying to make us calloused. And he's very good at it, by the way. Um, Things go wrong in life. And what ends up happening is the slings and arrows of, of offense keep on attacking our hearts. And our spirit, which, by the way, has cooled now. Our cool spirit isn't strong enough. To meet the challenge. There's nothing we can do. Oh no. We're too weak. That's what happens. He cools our spirit and he calluses our heart. The second offense he brings in. Remember I told you there were two deadly assaults. Two deadly offenses. The second one is the deceitfulness of riches. I can't tell you how many Christians fall for this one. The deceitfulness of riches effectively harden our hearts towards living by faith. 
Faith means you're going to obey the Lord, regardless what your circumstances are. You're going to obey the Lord. The Lord says, do this by faith. You do it, but there's not enough money to do it. God told me to do it. I'm going to do it. It'll happen. The circumstances aren't right. God said to do it. I'm going to do it. We do it by faith. Sometimes it's even something simple like coming to church. Oh, I'm going to go to church tomorrow. And then the morning comes, you open the door. Oh, it's raining. Oh, hmm. not a good day to go to church. What's the devil doing here? He's trying to callous our hearts and the deceitfulness of riches. And by the way, these are Jesus words in Matthew 13, the deceitfulness of riches. He told about the parable of the sower, you know, the seed went forth and then the thorns came up and choked the, uh, the little plants. And he called this the deceitfulness of riches and riches are deceitful. They really are. Money makes itself wings and it flies away. You might think you're getting a lot of money, but don't count on it. It's going to grow wings on you one day. It's going to be gone. We start thinking, boy, if only I had more money. You know what we need, honey? We need more money. If only we had more money, then our problems would be solved. (laughs) Money's not going to solve your problem. Money can't. Only God can solve your problem. But you see the deceitfulness of riches? It takes faith away from God and puts faith and trust in money. That's the deceitfulness of riches. So at this point, we can even now, when our spirit is cooled and our heart is calloused, we can even commit a sin and we don't feel as bad about it as we used to. Oh, when, when we were younger in the Lord, boy, that sin, Ooh, man, it would drive us to tears. We felt guilt. We got on our knees and asked God to forgive us. But after our spirits cooled and our heart gets callous, now we can commit the same sin and we don't feel that bad about it. Oh, well, others do it. It's no big thing. I won't lose my salvation. What's God going to do? Kill me? You see? Satan's very clever, don't you think? And so finally, now point number three now, we're on point number three. Satan gets us to copy the world. Copy the world. First, cool the spirit. Second, callous the heart. Third, copy the world. We look at the world now. At this point, of course, with a cooled off spirit and a calloused heart, it's easy to see why Christians will copy the world. I mean, what else is there for them to do? There's nothing. All they can do is copy the world. They look around at others and they say, look how much fun they're having. Look how much success they're having. Look at the joy. Look at the money. Look at the advancements in life. Oh, look at the houses. Look at the cars. Look at the, the cottages and the boats. Look at the vacations. We need to do that. Yeah, that's how I need to live. Yeah, that's how I need to live. And we somehow think that the world is happy. But listen, beloved, the world is not as happy as you think. Their so-called prosperity, their so-called success and so on. They're not as happy as they appear to be. Rich and powerful people have tremendous sorrows. God tells us this in James chapter five, verse one, go to now ye rich men weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. First Timothy six, nine says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's these people, men and women. Oh, I'm going to be rich. 
They end up in destruction. They often commit suicide. We've seen a lot of that lately. Hollywood people committing suicide. Wealthy industrialists committing suicide. Millionaires and sometimes billionaires committing suicide. People that you wouldn't think would have any reason to commit suicide, commit suicide. They're not as happy as you think. God tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, be not conformed to this world. But now we get to the last point. I have to hurry along here. The last point, number four. Number four is when we start to compartmentalize Christ. You see, it begins with a cooling of spirit. And then, say it with me, okay? Point number one is what? Cooling of spirit. Point number two is what? Callousing of the heart. Point number three is copying the world. These are the, the steps. And number four is now we compartmentalize Christ. Now we turn to our savior and we put Jesus in a box. We compartmentalize the Lord Jesus Christ, which we usually refer to as an hour on Sunday morning. We'll give him his hour. It's like he's in solitary confinement all week long. And, and like in, in the prison, he's let out of solitary confinement for one hour. Walk around the recreational area and then, oh, time's up, Jesus. Back in the box you get. I'll be, I'll be here next week. I'll see you next Sunday. One hour. The compartmentalizing of Christ. Now, perhaps you're, you're here today or you're watching over the internet and you're saying, well, pastor, I've never done that. I would never put Jesus in a little box one hour a week. I would never do that. Well, I hope you wouldn't. I really hope it never comes to that. But when you compare how you were living for Jesus when you first got saved to how you're living for Jesus now, is there any difference? Hopefully there'll be a big improvement, but it's not always that way. Often what happens is our zeal of attending church and zeal of reading the Bible and zeal of praying and zeal of getting others saved and telling our friends and neighbors about Jesus and down they, it goes because a zealous Christian is a threat to Satan and Satan will take definite steps in our lives to dumb us down, to dull us down, to quieten us down, to smother us, to make us ineffective. Well, imagine for a moment, if your father did this to you, imagine if your father compartmentalized you, and so you only ever got to see your dad once a week for one hour. Now, what would that feel like? Now, maybe for some people, they say, well, my dad was in prison. I only ever got to see him once a week for one hour. Okay, you're the exception, maybe. But for the rest of us, normally, we're supposed to have a full-time dad in the home, aren't we? We're supposed to have dad there, the presence of dad. Now, it's not always that way. But what if dad purposely did this and thought in his heart, you know, I really... I love my wife and kids, but not that much. I got a life to live. I got places to go and people to see and things to do. I can't be cumbered down too much. And so here's what I'll do. I'll put my wife and my kids in a little box. I will come and see you once a week for one hour. Hey, 
be happy with that. And the rest of the week, the rest of the hours of the day, I'm the captain of my own destiny. Man, I'm going places. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that one day for one hour. I got I to gotta get back and visit my wife and kids. Uh, you know what? I'm just so busy. I'll just I'll tell you what. I'll give them two hours next week. But then next week comes and they don't give them two hours. Some Christians say, oh, I'm just too busy to read my Bible and pray, but tomorrow I'll do twice as much. What are we doing here, folks? Hold on, time out. Are we not compartmentalizing the Savior? You know something? There's only one cure for all of this nonsense. There's only one cure, only one, and that's revival in the heart. That is the one and only thing that will cure this compartmentalizing of Jesus Christ. Even if it's just done on a small scale, perhaps a big blowing up scale might be, you know, Jesus one hour, once a week, that's it. But it's done by Christians on a smaller scale. We just give, you know, five minutes a day in devotions to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes not even that. We're compartmentalizing in a different way, but it's still compartmentalizing. And I think it's wrong. I think that in the light of what God has done for us and eternity, I think it's a mistake, but there's only one way to cure it, one way to fix it. And that's with revival in the heart. The Lord Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I have somewhat against thee. Thou hast left thy first love. That's what we need to do. We need to get back in love with our savior so that we wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Jesus. And we go through the day in fellowship with Jesus. Hmm? We can hardly wait to read the Bible and pray again. Say, how will we ever get that back? We can get it back through revival. So this is a very, very important message and a very cunning, clever trick of the devil to get us to compartmentalize our precious savior. We need to get back with the Lord. Give him our body again, like in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies. We need to make him king of kings, Lord of Lord of our lives. We need to stay close to our Savior every day so that we stay clean, we stay sharp. It only will happen through revival. It's not going to happen any other way. And the Lord won't force us. He won't force us to do it. He'll encourage us to do it but he won't force us. Maybe the Holy spirit has been encouraging your heart today saying, this is the way walking in it. Maybe it's been a long time since you've really spent some good time with the Lord. Maybe he just doesn't feel as close as he used to. Well, he's not going to force you. He's not going to grab you by the hair and yank you and drag you because you see, he's looking for a loving response. And so, Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I don't know if possibly you feel that the devil has devoured your prayer life. If he's devoured your faithfulness, maybe he's devoured your witness. You used to witness and let your light shine. Oh, what happened to it? Well, it's in the devil's stomach. He devoured it. How did this ever happen? It happens slowly and it all goes back to the cooling of the, the spirit and then the callousing of the heart. 
and then the copying of the world and then the compartmentalizing of the Savior. Sad but true. Pray with me now, would you please close your eyes, bow your heads. And I want to suggest to us today that we do some serious business, spiritual business with the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, help us to draw back close to our Savior. Lord, I pray that every one of us would experience a revival in our hearts. And Lord, I want that too. So often, Lord, I feel that I'm not as close as I, I could be, should be, and want to be. Heavenly Father, help us as a little church family to draw close to Jesus. Lord Jesus, sometimes we don't even know how we strayed and got off to one side. We don't even realize it happening and we don't know how we end up in the wilderness. Lord Jesus, you're the good shepherd. Would you come today? Would you come call your people home? Would you come and help someone today in their heart of hearts to draw in close with you again? And if there's some kind of sin or bad habit or something, show us how to repent of that. Turn that over to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us on the cross, saving us from going to an eternal hell. Thank you for all of your goodness. We need to just now live for you. Please, Lord, help us never to compartmentalize you. Help us to stop copying the world. Help us to get our hearts uncalloused, get our hearts soft before you and to get our, our spirits back on fire. And bless your people today, here at church and at home. For your honor, for your glory, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good to be together, right? Praise the Lord. We're together again. It's our opportunity now to worship the Lord with our giving, our tithes and offerings. Now here in the church, remember we, we can't pass the basket like we used to, but we've got a, a box on the back, a donation box. And I want to encourage you to give us unto the Lord. If somehow you forgot to bring your tithes and your faith promise, you can do that while you're here. We've got the uh, a little machiney thing there. Mrs. White will help you with that and fix you up with that. And uh, just a word now to those who are watching at home. God bless you. And please, at this point, we encourage you to go to the donation page and give as unto the Lord. Before we do, let us hear the word of the Lord together. It's in Psalm 96. Listen carefully, everyone, to the word of the Lord. Verses 7, 8, and 9. The Bible says, Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him 
all the earth. And let's pray once more. Father God, please continue to encourage your people in this area of faithful giving to keep the church strong, to keep the missionaries on the field. Bless each and every one. Help us to do it by faith. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to just uh, take a moment while the offertory is played, and then we'll uh, continue the service.